What we're talking about tonight, as you can see, is a, a very sensitive subject for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And so I'm, I'm praying that I, I handle this biblically and correctly uh, for, for the sake of all of us. Um, but I'm confident that that's going to happen because God's faithful um, and God's word's clear. But I'm going to start with something that doesn't seem to be related. So in 1912, a man named Robert Falcon Scott, a British Army officer or Navy officer, uh, and his men, a small group of Englishmen, set off for the South Pole. Nobody had ever been to the South Pole, no human being, and they were trying to be the first. Uh, Scott was already a hero in England. He'd, he'd done some other explorations, uh, so he was a well-known guy. He was tall and handsome, married to a beautiful socialite. Uh, so. He was just the picture of the, the proper British hero back in the age of exploration about 100 years ago. But not only did Scott and his men not win the race, the Norwegians did, Roald Amundsen, you may remember that name, but on their way back from the South Pole, Scott and all of his men died. None of them made it back to their base camp. And it was a huge blow to the British ego. They couldn't figure out how this could happen. Uh, there's a theory now, based on his diaries and some other evidence, that the men died of scurvy, which is surprising because, again, he was an officer in the British Navy, so were the rest of them. And it was the British Navy 150 years earlier that had discovered how to stop scurvy from happening. You just have to eat fruit. You have to, they didn't know it was called vitamin C at the time, but they, they realized people who eat fruit or have fruit juice, that they don't get scurvy. Uh, and this is why, you may be aware of this, Throughout the world, British sailors were known as limeys because they were known to take a, a daily shot of lime juice to ward off scurvy. So what happened? How, how come Scott and his men just didn't follow the, the rules they'd been taught? Well, something new had come up. They'd gained some new information in the time between the late 1700s and 1912. We had discovered bacteria. Nobody knew those existed until the late 1800s. And we discovered that a lot of diseases are caused by bacteria. And so people started to say, you know, seems like every disease is caused by these little unseen microbes, so fruits have nothing to do with scurvy. It's got to be some kind of bacterial infection. And so when Scott and his men first started to show signs of scurvy, what did they do? They started eating more because they thought we need, we need bigger rations so we can have more strength so we can ward off these infections and, and we need to clean everything. We need to meticulously clean all our equipment and our tents and our clothes and everything. And I'm sure those two steps made them feel better, but they didn't do a thing to stop scurvy, which apparently eventually killed and led to great tragedy. So the lesson of that is sometimes we know the truth but we get new information that causes us to forget the truth. And when that happens, tragedy happens. Tragedy occurs. And I'm going to, you probably already figured out how I'm going to apply that to this subject, but I'm going to apply it in two different ways. And the second way you might be surprised at, I'll get to that at the end. So here's the first way. When you look at the scriptures, biblical sexual ethics are clear and ambiguous. God created one man and one woman in the garden, and they became one flesh. Right there. That is biblical sexual ethics in one story. And it doesn't change from there. There's no variation. There's no, well, it was this way in this era, but not in this era. It is clear and ambiguous. Sexual intercourse was meant for a man and a woman within marriage, period. And anything outside of that is outside of God's design. And no matter how much we may celebrate those other ways, no matter how much those other ways may bring temporary pleasure, Eventually, 
they will cause damage. They are not, that's not what the human uh, body or soul was meant for. That's biblical sexual ethics. And of course, humanity rebels against that. Humanity's been rebelling against all of God's uh, commands and standards from the very beginning. But there was an exception. For most of history, in most of the world, most every culture agreed that sex was intended to be between men and women. Whether it was within marriage or not, well, you know, they could argue about that, but it was between men and women. And, and so there, it was known that homosexuality existed, but it, it, had, it was sort of universally looked down upon. So you could say that for most of history, the world and the church were sort of on the same page on that issue. And in fact, in the 1800s, it was called the love that dare not speak its name because if, if you were engaged in this lifestyle, you kept it hidden because it, it was not something that was accepted by pretty much anyone. Now, in the last 50 years, that's all changed, and very rapidly, at least from our perspective. Uh, I'm 52 years old, so I've, I've basically lived through this era of just rapid, massive change. I'd be willing to bet that... When I was born, if you would have polled most Americans, very few would have said, oh yeah, I know a person who's homosexual, I know a person who's gay. Probably most of them wouldn't have been able to name anyone. Uh, they probably wouldn't have even been able to name anyone famous. Maybe Liberace, but they would have said, ah, oh, you know, he's just kind of colorful. But today, what has happened is there's, a, there's been a, an extreme change in public attitudes on this issue. If you're a public figure, an entertainer, a commentator, a politician, and you are seen as disapproving of this kind of lifestyle or this kind of relationship, that's the end of your public career. If you're a, a CEO of a corporation or a member of a board, you know that you need to put out your your rainbow flag when it's Gay Pride Month. You need to make the right statements because that's what's good for business. Even a lot, we've already talked about it, even a lot of major historic Christian denominations are fracturing over this issue. Right now it's the United Methodist Church uh, that is wrestling with this issue. And again, what happened? Society got new information. Now, what's that new information? Like I said, 50 years ago, my estimation is most Americans didn't as far as they knew, know anybody who was gay. Now everybody knows somebody who's gay, just about. Because there are neighbors, there are coworkers, there are family members. I mean, you could say, I know this sounds trite, but the love that dare not speak its name has come out of the closet. Because what used to be secret is now public. And I'm not gonna get into how that happened or why that happened, but the fact of the matter is, because now most people know someone who is gay, we're now understanding that they're people. We see them as not so different than us, after all. Uh, when, you, when, you can, when it's someone theoretical, you can make up stories in your mind that you know, they hide under the bleachers at a football game and suck the blood of children. But when you meet someone who is gay and you realize, well, they're just as likely to be compassionate or courageous or uh, to love their families or to love their country, they're just as likely to be uh, polite, likable, as anybody else. Well, over time, that's led a lot of society to conclude that the traditional beliefs, meaning traditional biblical beliefs, on this subject are hateful. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond? What, what we're going to talk about tonight is not going to be popular, but we need to talk about what the Scripture actually says and how we should respond, how we should 
behave towards people who disagree with us. So let's start. I'm, I'm going to talk about several charges against us, uh, against Christianity and how we should respond. The first one kind of covers it all. Traditional Christian teaching about homosexuality is hateful. Now, let me just be the first to say that plenty of gay people have reasons to believe that Christians hate them. They've got evidence. They've got stories. And we're going to talk about that later. But what does the Bible actually say? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 uh, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what is Paul saying there? Remember, Corinthians is a letter to an actual group of people, a church that existed 2,000 years ago in the Greek city of Corinth. Paul is writing to people he knew personally. He's saying, remember where you were when the Lord found you. Some of you were ruled by your love of money. That was your your dominating urge was the urge to get more. Some of you were dominated by your urge for alcohol. You were just, you were insatiable in your desire to get drunk. Some of you were, were ruled by your desire for sex. Some of you were ruled by your desire for sex with someone of your own gender. All of these things and more, the things that are listed, these are things that I know that some of you did on a regular basis before you met Jesus. And those are the things that were keeping you out of the kingdom of God. But that's not who you are anymore. That's the whole point Paul is making is you're not that person anymore. It's not that he's not saying your desire went away. I'm sure the, the alcoholic still wanted a drink. I'm sure the greedy person still sometimes longed for more money. Uh, he's saying you've been bought with a price. You once were under the control of this. You've sold yourself to this desire, but now you've sold yourself to Christ. You are now a slave of Him because He's made you free. You're not that person anymore. You are a new person. You've been justified in the sight of God by His blood, and you are not the same. So, right there, you understand He's not condemning their desire. He's not condemning their orientation. He's condemning their former actions. He's saying, this is what separated you from God, but you're not that person anymore. So far from hating gay people, and this is just one example, but this, I think, is one of the clearest. God doesn't hate anyone. God loves gay people enough to die for them and enough to give them a new life. Next question or next charge. Traditional Christian teaching about homosexuality is based on misunderstandings. And this is, this is the response, I think, of a lot of folks who are in more liberal Christian denominations. So uh, folks like that are trying really hard to thread the needle. They want to stick with Christ, uh, but they also want to affirm their friends who are gay. And so they're trying to find a way to make both of those things work. And so they'll say one of two things. They'll say either, well, when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it's not talking about what we think of homosexuality as. It's not talking about uh, loving monogamous gay relationships. It's talking about things like pedophilia or uh, male prostitution or rape, but it's not talking about what we see today. And there are a lot of books that have been written from that viewpoint. The problem is the Bible's very, very clear. 
and unambiguous. The problem is, if you read the Bible for what it actually says, instead of trying to read into it what you want it to say, which, by the way, is a temptation we all fall into. We all want to read our perspective into Scripture, and you have to watch out for that. If God's Word doesn't step on your toes, you're not reading the Bible. You're reading yourself into the Bible. But this is a case right here. Uh, I, I read a uh, testimony by a, a Christian woman named Rachel Gilson who uh, was living a gay lifestyle. She came to know Christ. She's trying to figure out, can I continue to live this way and follow Jesus? And some friends that, that went to a theologically liberal denomination said, absolutely. And they gave her books that, that, sh that shared what I just shared with you. And she read them and she said, I, I ended up throwing them across the room because it was obvious that's not what the Bible was saying. They wanted it to say that, and I wanted it to say that, but that's not what it said. So others will come along and try a different tack. They'll say, listen, Paul and the other Christian writers were good. They were doing their best but they didn't know what they were talking about on this issue. They, they were Jews, and, and Jews 2,000 years ago, it, it's a little condescending. The Jews 2,000 years ago just didn't understand about homosexuality, and so they were condemning what they didn't understand, and so we can overlook what they said about that and just hold on to the rest. And the problem with that is, how do we decide which parts of the Bible still apply and which parts don't work anymore? Who gave us the right to say, I like all the stuff about Jesus. I like all the stuff about grace. I like all the stuff about the Son of God dying for my sins and me being forgiven and Jesus rising from the dead and eternal life. I just don't like what it says about sexuality. So I'm going to take this stuff that I like and I'm going to ignore this stuff that I don't. I don't think we have that right. Because if you say this isn't true, then how do you know the other part is? So that brings up a third, question, a third charge. Well, you Christians pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to believe in all the time anyway. And I've heard this from people, especially on this issue. Uh, and they'll point out, they'll point to specific things in the law of Moses. And here's an example. So they'll say, yeah, the law of Moses says that a man should not lie with another man, but it also says that a rebellious son should be brought to the, to the uh, leaders of the city and they should stone him to death. How come you don't do that? Good question. And, and I've talked about this before, about why we no longer follow all the commands in the Old Testament. And that's part of a longer discussion, but here's the short answer. So the, the, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, you can look at it as the constitution of a new nation, because that's really what it was. God was creating a new nation, the nation of Israel, and He was saying, these are your governing documents. This is how you will run your nation. This is how you will... Keep your people faithful to me and, and live, a nation, live as a nation that is just and free and, and, and follows the right laws and, and does what should be done. Then we get to the New Testament. And Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, among others, all say the same thing. The law of Moses no longer binds us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't need a priest anymore because Jesus is our priest, right? We don't, we don't follow the, the dietary laws anymore because Jesus said we don't need to. Peter said the same thing. Paul said the same thing. So what are we doing? Are we picking and choosing which parts of the Bible we want to believe? No, we're letting Scripture tell us how to interpret Scripture. 
Jesus and those other scriptural writers are saying the law of Moses was for a specific place and time, and we're no longer in that time, so now it no longer binds us. And every teenage boy should be thankful, right? Because there'd be a lot of stoned-to-death teenage boys if we still followed that. So, the other part of that is to realize that God's sexual standards never varied. There's nothing in Scripture that says, well, you know, what I said in Leviticus about, about men and men, that no longer applies. Instead, it's restated and reaffirmed throughout the Scriptures. Listen, homosexuality is not a major topic in Scripture. If I printed out every Scripture that, that directly spoke on it, it'd fit easily on one half of one page. But every time it is referred to, it is condemned in unambiguous terms. So there's no question uh, about what the Scriptures say on this issue. So then the, other ch the next charge is, well, but I'm born this way. Why would God make me this way and then condemn me? And there is a debate, and there's been a debate for many, many years, about whether there's such a thing as a gay gene, uh, whether there's a genetic link to you are literally born that way. And let me just say, it doesn't do us any good to get into those arguments. Unless you're a geneticist, you really don't have any business in that argument. And I don't think it matters. Because the truth is, I've known a lot of gay people and none of them chose to be the way they were. None of them said, well, you know, when I was 16, I just thought that sounded like a good idea. To be the subject of mockery and, and, and yeah, to, to be different from all my friends and to make my parents angry. Yeah, that sounded like a great idea. Uh, in fact, I've known several people who said, I prayed all through my high school years and, and my junior high years and my college years that God would change my orientation and it never happened. I don't think it, it, it matters to us. It's something we should argue about. We can't tell someone, you're not telling the truth when you say that you've always felt this way or you felt this way as long as you can remember. That's, that, is, that is not a good faith or a charitable or a gracious way to, to engage in this, in this, arg in this uh, issue. But let me say this. We all have a sin nature. I have wonderful parents. I wouldn't trade them for any other parents in the world. But my mom and dad passed a sin nature down to me. Before I ever committed my first conscious sin, I was already a sinner because my parents passed that nature down to me. And as hard as I try to love my son and my daughter, I passed a sin nature down to them. So there are things that I am predisposed to find difficult to avoid. There are things that, there are sins that I tend to stumble into, and there are others that aren't really a problem for me. And you probably would say the same thing about yourself. For instance, again, talking about alcoholism, most people agree there's a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism. I don't think my wife would mind me telling you this. She has told our kids many times, don't ever get into drinking because we have many addicts in my family. There are people who've been addicted to alcohol in my family. This is my wife talking. Uh, there have been people who've been addicted to medication. So we believe that there is a genetic predisposition that makes it more likely that people from that family, my own wife's family and my kids, uh, are predisposed toward addiction. Now, is our, should our response be, well, you know, you, you want to drink, so you might as well just drink all you want. You know, just go to the bars every night and just drink all you want. Nobody would do that. Nobody would say that. Nobody who loves someone who struggles with alcoholism would say, you're born this way, just feed it. Just lean into it. Just be yourself. 
Instead, we would say, this is not good for you. Let's help you find a more healthy way. And so, in the same way, even if it is someday proven that there is a genetic link to homosexuality, I wouldn't be surprised. And it doesn't say anything about God. It says, humanity is broken because of our sin. And it manifests itself in different ways for different humans. It doesn't mean you have to say yes to the way you're predisposed. In fact, a life of freedom indicates you're following God's path instead of the path that comes most naturally to you. And then that brings up the question, well, does biblical sexual ethics condemn homosexuals to a life of loneliness? Is, is a person who wants to follow Jesus but has this, this desire in their heart, this, this same-sex desire, are they condemned to a choice between, I, I want to follow Jesus, but if I do, I'm going to be lonely all my life, I'm going to be sad, I'm going to be depressed, or... I'm going, to, I'm going to do what my body says, and I'm going to be happy, but I'm going to miss heaven. I'm going to miss salvation. Okay, again, I'm going to tell you a story that doesn't seem uh, related, but I think it does. When my mom was in her 40s, she re- found out that she was lactose intolerant, which was very ironic because she was the daughter of a dairy farmer. Um, and I remember her telling me, because I was a teenager at the time, she said, it's not so hard to give up cheese. I can not put a slice of cheese on my burger. I can stop ordering cheese enchiladas and pizza. It's okay. I don't have to drink a glass of milk with the cookies. I don't have to pour milk over my cereal. I'm fine with that. The hard part for her was giving up ice cream. I think a lot of us can identify, right? Ice cream. Oh, that she just hated the thought, especially in the summertime. And at one point she went to her doctor. She said, you know what I've realized? I can eat a little ice cream. As long as it's not every day, as long as it's just a little bit, I can eat a little ice cream and I feel fine. I can get away with it if I'm just eating a little. And the doctor said, Betty, I'm sorry. You're not really getting away with it. You think you are because you don't feel anything immediately. But what you're doing is you're putting something in your body that your body's not equipped to handle or process. So you're, you're slowly poisoning yourself and you may not feel it immediately, but it's going to catch up to you. And you're going to get sick. And you may, when it happens, you may not even know it was because of that ice cream, but it will be. And so from then on, mom didn't eat ice cream. And, and to this day, does not eat ice cream. Uh, and, you know, you could say, well, there's vegan ice cream. I mean ice cream, okay? There's, there's a reason why it's called ice cream. So my mom doesn't eat ice cream. Hasn't for 30 years. Has she starved to death? No. Is she miserable? No. She's as happy. This did not impact her happiness or the fullness of her life. She was able to eat and is still able to eat lots of incredibly delicious things. It didn't change her life. It didn't take away her joy. See, the lie that sexual fulfillment is a non-negotiable, if you want to live a meaningful life, has been widely bought into by the culture and the church. Which, side note, is why so many single adults in church get so much pressure. When are you going to get married? Which is nonsense. Nonsense. Jesus and Paul both lived lives of celibacy and singleness their whole lives, and others in Scripture as well. Would you want to stand up and say, Jesus should have been married? Paul, if he would have been married, he would have had a happier life. I'm not going to say that. 
fact, Paul would say differently. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, and he's talking to young people who are thinking about getting married. He says, if you want to get married, that's fine. God allows it, and it's a beautiful thing. But I, I sure wish you had the same gift as I do. I, I sure wish you were able to be single like I'm able to be single. He's not saying, I wish marriage didn't exist. He's saying, when I see a married couple, I don't think to myself, man, I wish I had what they had. I think to myself, I'm glad I have what I have because I'm able to focus more of myself on Jesus and love him better and be loved more fully by him and serve him with all my heart because I don't have to worry about a wife and kids. Paul thought his singleness was a gift. His celibacy was a gift. So here's, what I'm, here's my point with my mom's story. Just like my mom wasn't really getting away with eating ice cream. She just thought she was. The fact that you've probably met or seen gay people who are in happy, loving, monogamous relationships, that doesn't prove that God's standards are therefore wrong. God would say, I know you. I made you. I made your body. I made your soul. I know what it was designed for. And you can get away with using it in a, in a way that it wasn't intended for a while. You can. But eventually it's going to catch up to you. See, all of God's commands are for our good. He didn't create commands to steal happiness from us. He didn't create commands to say, okay, I'm going to make it really hard for people to be righteous so that only the truly strong rise to the top. He's a God of grace. If there is a command in Scripture, it's because God knows more than we do about our own bodies and our own happiness and our own souls. And that's the case with this. Now, I've had a couple of, of Christian friends, not in this church, so don't start looking around and trying to figure out who I'm talking about, but two Christian friends who were both celibate gay men. They knew what the Scripture said, therefore they did not act on their desires. They believed in Jesus. They trusted Him. Both of them would have said, I have a full life. I'm able to serve God. I have deep, rich Christian friendships. I, I have everything I need. The worst part for them was not being able to talk about it. The worst part for them was anybody else could stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. And everybody would rally around them and say, praying for you, brother. I've never been there myself, but I know it's hard. I'm, I'm on your side. I have a problem with temper. I have a problem with laziness. I have a problem with greed. Everybody would have come around and said, you're so brave for confessing that. But both of these men would say to me, I'm able to tell you. I'm able to tell my closest friends, but I can't stand up in a Sunday school class and tell them my biggest struggle as a Christian. I can't, I can't stand up in front of the church and give my testimony like other other believers can. I, I can't do that because I'm pretty sure I know how my church will react. I'm pretty sure there's too many people there who would never look at me the same again, who might never let me be around their kids, who might never let me serve as God has created me and gifted me to serve. And so they were, they were having to, they had to keep it to themselves. And as far as I know, still feel that way. And that makes me deeply sad. So I talked at the beginning about the polar, polar explorers and, and the mistake they made, new information, made them forget what they'd learned, what they'd known about life, and it turned out to be tragedy. And we talked about how that's happened in culture. 
But I think in a different way, it's happened to the church. And let me explain what I mean. See, the new information the church gained in my own lifetime is finding out that the culture was changing its mind on the issue of homosexuality. So as we saw new laws being first promoted, first uh, you know, talked about, and then being passed, as we saw uh, changes in entertainment, as we saw changes in popular culture, as we saw all of these changes, this lifestyle suddenly no longer just tolerated, but celebrated. Our response was, this is a threat to our way of life, and we need to fight it tooth and nail. And that's been the story of evangelical Christianity my whole life. We've been engaged in this culture war, and I'm not going to get into the goods and the bads, because there were some good things that happened out of that and some very, very bad things, and that's not my purpose tonight. My purpose is to say this. Somewhere along the way, we forgot what the Scriptures actually say about how you're supposed to treat sinful people. We started seeing people as an enemy instead of, well, that's, that's a lost sinner like I once was. How did Jesus teach lost sinners? Think specifically about how Jesus treated those who were sexually immoral. Like I said Sunday, they were his most loyal followers because they didn't, he didn't do what the religious establishment did, which was say, get away from us, you're dirty. But he didn't do what the world said either, which was, oh, your life is fine, just keep living it. He said, go and sin no more. He said, I'm offering you a new path, a path that you were designed for, a path that will lead you to abundance. They found in him what they'd been missing their whole life. Think about that church in Corinth. Think about a church where there was a whole group of believers that could stand up in church and say, yeah, I used to be this person. I used to go to the bathhouses. I used to, I used to have uh, same-sex lovers. I'm not that person anymore. I'm someone new in Christ. What happened to us? Why, why did we change? Why don't we treat their lifestyle the way we would any other bad decision? So, got a couple of examples of what I mean. So, go back. I, I hate to keep harping on alcoholism, but if you have a friend who is an alcoholic, how do you treat them? Do you, do you insist they stop drinking or you're not going to be their friend? I hope not. Do you make fun of them? I, I don't think that's a very effective a strategy either. Do you talk to them about, the, about it every time you see them? When's the last time you had a drink? Tell me. That's a pretty good way to not have that person as a friend anymore. I'm pretty sure they know how you feel about their drinking. So your job is to love them, to support them, to pray for them, to encourage them in hopes that you can lead them toward the truth. Knowing that, by the way, the real important thing is, do they know Christ? Because let's face it, you can get them off of alcohol, but they still need Jesus. That's the point. Here's another example I thought of. So the scriptures are clear that we as Christians are not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers. And we interpret that to mean that when you get married, you don't yoke yourself to someone who isn't a follower of Christ because then you're going this way with Jesus and they're going that way and either you're gonna, you're gonna go with them away from Christ or you're gonna go toward Jesus away from them and the marriage is gonna dis disintegrate. And so it's, it's just God's will is don't yoke yourself to unbelievers. So... What would I do as a dad, both of my kids are single, if one of them one day came home and said, Dad, I'm marrying this person, 
and this person is an atheist, or this person is a Muslim, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or, or any other non-Christian religion. Would I say, you're not my child anymore? Well, I hope not. Would I say, um, you divorce them at once? No. What I would want to do, what I would hope I would do, was make sure they knew that I loved them just the same as before they made that decision. What I would want them to know is that I would love them no matter what. And in fact, I'd love their spouse. I'd love their spouse's family and all their mutual friends because those are people who need Jesus too. I think you see what I'm getting at. My goal would not be to break up their marriage. If it happened, I would be there to help them pick up the pieces, but that would not be my goal. My goal is to bring them to Christ. And both my kids are Christians, so uh, it wouldn't necessarily be to save their souls because their souls are already saved. It would be, come back to the Lord. He's what you need. And so my reminder to us, when, this, when it comes to this issue, our primary emotion should not be anger. It should not be disgust. It should not be uh, a sense of, you're against me. And our goal is not to prove that their lifestyle is wrong. Our goal is not to change their behavior. Our goal is to bring them to Jesus, and He does the rest. And if that is our focus, then we're doing all that we can do. And I say that knowing it's very likely some of you face this very issue right now, and it's not easy. But the best thing you can do is exactly what Jesus commands us to do, which is love the people He places before you. Love them in His name. You can't go wrong. I know that doesn't answer all your questions. I don't have all the answers. But that, I think, is the place to start. So, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, next week, hopefully, we'll have a microphone. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your truth. And we thank You that Your truth is for our good. That You tell us how life works because You love us and You want us to prosper and thrive. Lord, we pray for families that are broken over this issue. That You would grant believers in those families the wisdom uh, to know how to love and how to uh, walk in wisdom and peace and grace. Lord, I pray that your church would be revived and so we would stop seeing this issue from a self-centered point of view, but instead would start to see people from your, through your eyes and to love them as you do. Lord, I pray that the world would begin to see that your love is the love that transforms, the love that saves, that we would overcome the mistakes we've made over the last several decades and represent you well in the face of people who think that you hate them. Lord, I pray instead there would be revival and awakening. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.